Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Speaking with Edward Ross Dickinson, author of Dancing in the Blood, Modern Dance and European Culture on the Eve of the First World War. Uh, Dr. Dickinson is professor and chair of the history department at the University of California, Davis. It's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you very much for speaking with me. Thanks very much. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I was wondering, to start off with, could you share with our listeners a little bit about what brought you to this project, how it came about? Right. Well, I, uh, in 2014, published a book on debates about public decency in the German Empire. And uh, one of the sort of sub-debates within that broader debate was about modern dance, because the modern dancers danced in fairly uh, short tunics and uh, togas and such, and they were considered by the standards of the time to be naked or suggestive or indecent. So... um, I then published an article on a particular uh, case of a woman who was arrested in Munich in 1911 and then arrested again in Paris in 1913 and charged with indecency. And I got very interested in dance through looking at that case, and that turned into a a book. Okay. And... So you you talk about modern dance not as a genre per se, but as an agenda. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, so when we speak of modern dance, usually we're speaking of a particular sort of movement idiom and, um, you know, roster of um, conventions of performance and costuming and sets and so forth that emerged really in the 1920s and 30s. And this book instead is about the origins of that uh, modern dance form in the period before the First World War, uh, when those conventions <clears throat> and those aesthetic sort of canon hadn't been hadn't been developed yet. So it's modern in the sense that it is related to modernism in the arts, but it's not the modern dance that we think of when we say modern dance. And um, but I thought it was. Uh, important and very revealing, actually, to look at that period of origins before um, the modern dance idiom had been sort of codified um, and look at where those central ideas that are uh, conveyed through modern dance, where they came from, how they were developed, what their connections were to other areas of, of life, to other areas in the world outside of the sort of geographic center of early modern dance um, in, in Europe and the United States. So that leads me to, to one question that I, I found myself returning to as I was reading your book. In, today, when we think of modern dance, we tend to think of it as um, a very Western form. But as you're suggesting and as you demonstrate in your book, um, it is something that traverses the globe in, in this very uh, kind of special, unique historical moment. 
So could you speak a little bit about that dual identity as being something that is both situated in kind of Europe and America in, in the West, but also something that is seen as perhaps somewhat global? Right. Well, the, the odd thing about the early period of modern dance, or what I'm calling modern dance or modernist dance, <laughs> is that um, the, the first successful performers were very often... Uh, pretending to be someone else or mimicking dance forms from other areas of the world or claiming to reconstruct dance forms from ancient civilizations, ancient Greece or ancient Hebrews. Uh, and um, so it was, in that sense, exotic dance, not in the way that we use the term today, but exoticizing dance, right? So um, the great American pioneers performed as respectively an Indian dancer a Greek, an ancient Greek dancer and an ancient Hebrew dancer. And many of the European um, performers who then um, were inspired by them took on similar roles, ancient Egyptian or ancient Greek or ancient Indian or, or what have you. So um, one of the curious things and something that I'm very interested in today, having written this book, is that they very clearly did, in some cases, genuinely borrow movement forms and part of their movement idiom from other cultures. So um, Ruth St. Dennis, one of the great American dancers, uh, sort of workshopped her performance as an Indian dancer with Indians who were living in New York in the early 20th century and who, in fact, in some cases were performing dance at Coney Island. Um, she later hired uh, a Japanese dancer to teach her some elements of Japanese dance. Um, there's a, a, a very minor figure, Regina Woody, who performed as an Indian dancer under the name Mila Devi. She actually did hire an Indian dancer to teach her some Indian dance in Paris. Um, so there are all those connections. And then also uh, there were performers from all over the world performing in uh, Europe and to some extent in the United States during this period, usually in um, in um, variety theater, uh, but not always. And uh, th that's been written about fairly extensively by um, various authors. And uh, it's very clear that some of the movement idiom of early modern dance was picked up from um, performers from other parts of the world in European or American variety theaters, which is where most, most of the European and American dancers also at first performed, um, performed their acts, their dances. So, so there are all those interesting connections. Okay, well, well, that also kind of brings me to this emphasis that you lay on modern dance as part of this larger project of constructing mass culture as something that isn't quite high culture or low culture. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so again, the sort of central theme of the book is self-contradiction and the, the power and the productivity of self-contradiction. And one of the many self-contradictory aspects of modern dance, as I use the term, was that it was, um, it carried both sort of a very elite high culture cachet and the modern dancers um, mixed socially with aristocrats and very wealthy art uh, patrons and so on, and the intellectual circles associated with modernism and modern art. Um, 
but it also was started out really as a as a popular performance form in variety theater. And uh, it was uh, popular in part because it did carry that sort of high culture prestige and the prestige of association with lots of sort of leading artists of the time and leading intellectual figures of the time. But many of those leading artists and intellectuals were attracted to it because it did have a, a mass audience. And part of the agenda of modernism is to bring art into daily life and to to uh, break down the the distinction between art and daily life or art and daily culture. So um, again, the, the, the two sides of modern dance as a form of popular entertainment and as a uh, form of high art statement reinforced each other. And what did this do also? I mean, the, the various contradictions that you tease out and elaborate on in the book are, are what I found really particularly interesting. Um, and one of them is between kind of this art, even if kind of this new the, or, or more accessible art form. And then, of course, the marketing of this art form and, and, and modern dance as, as a potential commodity. Um, did you find, do you find there's something quite particular or, or new in what's happening in, in kind of this interwar period uh, in terms of marketing? Absolutely. This is the, the, you know, the period of the great blossoming of the modern uh, advertising industry. Uh, it's the period of the sort of codification of theorization of how advertising works. Um, and it's also the period in which there are some very, very important cultural forms that are um, really taking hold that rely on modern forms of, um, of marketing. And one is the illustrated newspaper, right, which can be sold very, very cheaply because it's funded primarily by advertising revenue rather than by subscriptions. So there are those kinds of uh, developments going on, and modern dance is part of that whole development and sort of the, 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 the aura of astute business acumen that surrounds many of these modern dancers uh, is part of what makes it feel modern and exciting at the time because the development of these, of these marketing techniques is, is, is so striking to people at the time. And that, that's really interesting, actually, to think about it in inhabiting kind of these, these multiple realms. Um, on, on, on this point of contradictions, again, that you brought up and that, again, features so centrally in, in your book, um, also the contradictions between the individual and the communal or the idea of dance as universal or culturally essential, um, which then, of course, brings us to the title of your book, Dancing in the Blood, which, which to me was kind of the, what drew me to your book, which was so fascinating about your study. Um, could you speak about this idea of dancing in the blood? Right. Um, the title comes from the use of the term blood ubiquitously all over the, the reception and the self-presentation of modern dance. Uh, and the argument was that the aesthetic qualities of dance performance are derived from the ethnicity of the performer. Right. Uh, so that uh, Italians dance with I don't know, particular vivacity and musicality and Germans dance with particular profundity and spirituality and uh, Americans dance with particular energy and, and so on and so forth. Um, and um, of course, the bizarre feature of that is that, again, many of these performers are pretending to be someone else, pretending to be Indian dancers or Greek dancers or, um, or Egyptian dancers. So in that sense, it doesn't make any sense that they would claim to be expressing the uh, essential aesthetic 
characteristics or traditions of their blood, of their ethnic uh, group, right? While pretending to be someone else. So it's very, very odd. Uh, and I think they they bridged that contradiction through the notion that uh, fundamentally uh, the condition of humanity is universal and that different ethnic groups, different racial groups, different national traditions express different aspects of, uh, of, the, of human potential, right? But in a sense, we can access... Once we learn to access our own blood or soul or the or the fundamental characteristics of our own um, heritage, that attunes us to uh, how to tap into the fundamental characteristics of other bloods or ethnic groups, right? So they become, in that sense, they become kind of identity experts or soul experts, um, and they can market themselves as people who are able to steep themselves in a culture and then express its essence. Um, and there's some very odd language about um, the erasure of the, of the self in, in dance performance. Uh, dancers and, and also critics speak of the dancer ceasing to be herself when she enters into the dance and taking on the characteristics of that other culture that she has um, that she has absorbed or studied or, or, or um, uh, you know, entered into. And that may be her own culture, or it may be someone else's culture. So it's a, it's a very odd, again, sort of um, contradiction between identity and otherness universal, and universality. This this emphasis uh, you show that they placed on feeling one one ethnicity rather than being that ethnicity um, is is really kind of resonant in in capturing this this um, somewhat frustrating contradiction really because it it you know on the one hand it maintains these essentialized categories even if they might suggest to be a radical break from them or from from the racial politics of that time. That's right. Yep. They both conf they both com confirm and subvert racial stereotypes. Yes, and and in reading this, I I kept thinking of uh, contemporary debates around cultural appropriation, especially in in pop culture and music and dance. Uh, has that been a a relationship that you have thought of and and looked into? It really hasn't. I've thought of it in the context of uh, cultural appropriation in the period of imperialism. Right. So before before the Second World War, and I haven't followed the discussion of cultural appropriation in uh, modern dance. Um, I'm aware of it, of course, but it's not something I've read about extensively. Right, but I think kind of the richness of the material that you you uh, deliver for us kind of you know extends um, our understanding of this in 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 history, which is really fantastic, and I really enjoy that in your work. Um, I, I suppose uh, the other thing that was so fascinating, and, and this is really kind of came out again in, in the starting point of your project, in being drawn to this from questions or, or debates around public decency uh, and, and showing that these dancers aren't just operating in kind of this 
silo of an art world, but you show them to be political agents, you show them to be philosophers, you show them to be um, kind of activists in, in certain sense. Um, and, and, and it makes sense that you say that, you know, modern dance played a central role in, in giving birth to the global 20th century, this idea of making the world that we live in today. Um, could you speak a little bit more about how you saw these dancers playing these multiple roles or, or doing these multiple things? Right. Well, um, again, I started with the debates about public decency. And that, in the context of modern dance, that was a debate really about citizenship. And the um, the argument of opponents of modern dance, of, of conservative, cultural conservative critics of modern dance, most of them Christian, uh, the argument was that um, modern dance is sexually suggestive and that it therefore encourages people to indulge their sensual desires. Uh, that leads them to reject or resist authority, which is there to keep people within the bounds of decency within the bounds of responsible social behavior, and that that is politically subversive and can lead to chaos, right? To political chaos. And then chaos leads to tyranny. Uh, so the function of cultural authority is to uh, maintain those boundaries of, of public behavior in order to defend ultimately freedom. Because Otherwise, we'll have a chaotic society in which people are all just pursuing their own selfish desires and they will turn to some form of tyrannical authority that is not informed by a great spiritual tradition in order to impose order and, and protect them right, from their predatory fellow citizens or fellow subjects, I should say. The argument of modern dancers and the, and the art world that generally champions them is that uh, the moral the citizen is a moral citizen, uh, not a moral subject, right? That we are responsible for our own choices and for our own uh, codes of decency and indecency, and that this is um, uh, the the attempt to impose an external authority, moral authority on this particular aesthetic form is part of a broader resistance against democracy. Right. So when people uh, go to modern dance performances in the period before the First World War, and particularly the performances of women who've been accused of or, or charged with indecency, they are acting out their own moral autonomy as citizens, not subjects. Right. So it becomes a form of political claim to to to, to the rights of citizenship. Um, but there are lots of different ways in which modern dance does that. Another is, of course, that these are uh, independent women artists and entrepreneurs who are their own choreographers and their own producers and um, are acting out the independence of the modern woman in a particular business form, right? Uh, and again, uh, this was one of the things that was regarded as um, suggestive or indecent or morally reprehensible about this was precisely the independence of these women and the fact that they were not being subject to any authoritative aesthetic tradition embodied by the role of males as choreographers or producers or what have you. So um, it's a democratic and feminist art form, right? <laughs> 
Um, and then, of course, again, there is this funny role, which I address in the in the last chapter, uh, that some of these performers play as, in a sense, uh, validators or participants in anti-colonial nationalist movements, uh, which is, you know, probably the most problematic of these forms of self-contradiction, right? These are white European and American women performing um, for Indian audiences or Peruvian audiences or what have you. Uh, but in truth, the sort of uh, feminist claims of modern dance are not less self-contradictory because they genuinely are producing themselves as a commodity for the popular entertainment market, right? So they so they make a claim to autonomy by commodifying themselves. So as 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 a way of kind of embracing that, which is so fascinating. It was it, the the conversation that you just indicated that you turned to at the end of the book, um, kind of the influence that these women had on um, dance projects in in kind of the colonized world. Um, it's really interesting because that's where I've looked at in my research. But to see that you know these debates around morality and chastity and and kind of maintaining control over sexuality that raged in in kind of the colonized world who was looking to Europe and that these same debates you know were were taking shape in Europe as well is really a fascinating connection to make. Absolutely. And it's one that only becomes more intense in the 1920s and 30s when um, there's a there's really a very much a two way exchange, uh, particularly between India and Europe. But to some extent, also, for example, uh, between uh, what later became Indonesia and Europe by way of some some Dutch dancers uh, who uh, who not only go to uh, Java to teach dance and ballet, but also very clearly adopt certain uh, forms of movement from Javanese dance, which then appear in and are praised in um, in uh, Dutch newspapers, for example, as a wonderful and fascinating innovation. Right. So there's very, very much a two way street. Um, and you, I'm sure you're familiar with the role of Uday Shankar, um, who's a very influential figure, both in European dance and in Indian dance. Absolutely. It's, it's these kind of amazing conversations that are happening um, simultaneously, really, to, to create this, this genre or, or kind of larger project. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, I think the book focused on the period before the First World War and focuses primarily on European and American dancers. Um, I guess I'd like to write another book that, that um, deals more with that really very, very much global phenomenon of dance in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Well, it's always good to have a next book project in mind. <laughs> um, so in addition to this kind of moving around the world and, and across borders, um, what really surprised me in, in reading about the dancers that you're discussing is also the way in which they look across different temporal categories that, you know, and especially, you know, today when we talk about modern dance or contemporary dance, we're limited by the fact that these are also temporal categories. But you show that these dancers were really reaching into the ancient past as much as they were focused on the modern contemporary moment. And, you know, this is actually, uh, I hate to say it, but it's a, it's a characteristic of racial thought, right? That, that the, the essence of any race is completely timeless. 
And so in order to discover who we truly are as a racial group today, we have to study our ancient ancestors, right? And so you get these very odd um, passages in which uh, Mary Wigman, who's a very prominent German dancer, is praised as embodying the culture of the ancient Germanic tribes, right? Or you get the very odd phenomenon of Isadora Duncan uh, presenting herself as an ancient Greek dancer, even as she insists that she's not trying to simply reproduce ancient Greek dance, but she's capturing its essence for our time. And, the, and the, of course, the theory is that, uh, you know, European culture has its origin in and is still essentially ancient Greek culture. And then, of course, there's all the racial stereotypes about Oriental culture, quote unquote, being timeless and being, you know, unchanged over millennia. And... But this idea of, of, of discovering one's modernity kind of through through the past was really striking. Yeah. And I think that may appeal particularly to uh, Europeans who are setting themselves in opposition to the Christian tradition. Right. So they identify with the pagan ancient tradition in distinction to the, the medieval Christian tradition. So that may have had a particular resonance with Europeans. And is that something that might play into your discussion when you're um, talking about the spirituality that they found in line with kind of Darwinian thinking also? Right. Yeah, that's a little bit different, I think. That's a return not to a specific ancient tradition, but to, quote unquote, nature with a capital N, right? Uh, we return to natural forms of expression, of bodily expression, including sexual expression, in order to uh, clear convention and tradition out of the way of the process of evolution, right? Uh, so modern dance, again, as I argue in the book, constitutes itself as a kind of uh, liturgy of the what was called at the time the evolutionist pseudo-religion, the faith in uh, biological evolution as the true path to transcendence and to the eventual divinity of humankind. Um, not the immortal soul, but the um, the human body or even sometimes explicitly the racial body evolving toward godhood. Well, it's fascinating, again, kind of these, these simultaneous contradictions that are held that you show. Yes, right. So, so the contradiction there is that the dance of the ancient past is the dance of the evolutionary future. Yes. <laughs> It's 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 fascinating and 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 really I mean um, quite quite fantastic to see how these these people must have been truly fantastic people for for having so many contradictions. I like the word fantastic. Yes, it is. It's, it's fantastic <laughs> and fantastical. It is. It is. I just I, I kept thinking that you know trying to imagine what these people must have been like as I was reading your book. Yes. And one of the things that's, that kind of strikes me about it is how very different they were. We think of them as, you know, they're somehow modern and therefore like us, but they're not at all. They're modernist and very different from us. Well, at one point, and, and this is uh, kind of something that I'd like to ask you, is you suggest that uh, dancers from the beginning of this period, say from 1903, would have had certain feelings if they were to see what modern dance had become 
in the 1930s, or one might suggest even later. Could you speak a little bit about that? Because I think, again, that shows the diversity and and the development of the the issues and themes that you're discussing. Right. I think that I made that comment with reference specifically to the development of um, training regimens uh, or dance pedagogy and the development of the idea that it's really, really hard work to develop a dancer's body, a body that can truly express uh, what is genuinely natural and, and, and essential about the dancer or even about the dancer's blood, right? Uh, so you get people like Martha Graham, I think it was, saying it takes 10 years to, to create a dancer, 10 years of hard work to create a dancer. Um, and that's something that um, would quite possibly have seemed um, troubling to people before, dan- modern dancers before the First World War, because of the centrality of the idea of spontaneity in their performance, right? I am spontaneously performing my feelings, my response to music, uh, my spiritual state. Um, and um, the, 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 the very disciplined systems of dance education and training that develop in the 20s and 30s always do uh, retain that commitment to individual expression, right? You have to be disciplined and work hard in order to be able to express your own individual uh, message. Uh, And yet, nevertheless, there is this very, very intense physical training that goes into the making of dancers by the 1930s. Well, yes, it just, and that becomes such a almost perfect metaphor for kind of everything that comes afterwards <laughs> this emphasis on on discipline and and um you know i keep thinking of the dancer who just put on too much muscle and and you know couldn't have that that thin body it's a terrible story isn't it it really is it really it's, is it's nightmarish i'm working so hard that i'm putting on muscle mass and therefore i might get fired for weighing too much yes it's horrifying. Which, which again kind of brings us back to those contradictions of you know kind of real body versus performing body yes absolutely well i i just would like to say again how much i enjoyed reading your book and i feel like it's opened up a whole new world to me so i can't recommend it highly enough thank you that's wonderful um, to hear thank you so much for taking the time to to speak with me today about it it was very much my pleasure thanks uh, uh, thank you very much 